I think expressing yourself in form is more important than uh, visual language. It's a different processing. Art has given me a structure of pieces that has given me a way back to go further. It's like you can't move forward unless you look back. There was an interview and there was one question was rejected, or one answer was rejected from the committee when they put the book together. What would you do if you didn't have art? The only difference between a crazy person and an artist is they have a constructive path. Because you're both at the edge of time. Hi, this is Sarah with another episode of Materially Speaking, where artists tell their stories through the materials they choose. Today I'm meeting Canadian-born John Greer, who was a professor of sculpture for 26 years at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Halifax. John was the catalyst for the Halifax movement in the 1990s, which was rooted in minimalism and conceptualism. His inspiration often comes from ancient Celtic stones and Greek sculpture, and he likes the collusion between cultural and natural history. Californian photographer Gail Scoff took some great photographs of John at work, which you can find on our website. I met John at the studio, which he shares with his wife, the sculptor Vanessa Pashakanis, on the edge of Pietrasanta. I asked John to introduce himself. My name is John Sidney Greer, uh, Irish extraction in Canada. Uh, British subject, born abroad, said on my birth certificate. Uh, How do you identify? Do you identify as Canadian, though, very much? Well, uh, I love Italy. <laughs> so, uh, because I'm, I'm interested in history. I'm interested in why humans have created history, because our only way to move forward is looking backward. And I still believe in progress. Uh, and art has allowed me to try and make sense of the world I found myself in. And I think that's, that's, that's the, the purpose for me. And I think the function of art is quite different than the purpose. I think the function of art is to destabilize the status quo. Because if a culture uh, gets too rigid, it'll break. Uh, and and I, I don't think people understand uh, culture quite the same way as I do. I see culture as a construct, and, and it varies from culture to culture. Uh, I think there is crossover sometimes. But I think we confuse culture with reality. Uh, I think reality is also a construct. Uh, and I think part of the function of art is, is to make people realize 
that reality isn't what we think it is. Uh, I mean, the reason there's wars is because both sides are right from that cultural perspective. And they'll kill each other over something that's, that's been put together and they believe it as, as reality. I don't think reality will ever know what that is because we only have glimpses of it. And I think when you get some kind of an epiphany, then you're, then you're into some level of reality that goes beyond culture. And I think uh, I've had a few of those epiphanies in work has come out of it. And that's when I find that things are working. It's like Matisse. They asked Matisse if he believed in God and he said, only when I'm working. Uh, so I think that's a beautiful quote. Uh, because I think, you know, in a way, work that transcends uh, from one culture to another becomes uh, bridges. And I think what's important in a, a personal body of work is that the bridges that connect one piece to another to create a body, because a body of work is more important in the long run than individual pieces uh, because it's part of a voice. Uh, I taught for a long time and a lot of students from the say ceramics department would want to take sculpture because it's three-dimensional and and I would have to have a lot of dialogue what's the difference between craft and art and uh, and I think there is a difference, otherwise we wouldn't have two terms. Uh, I think craft enhance the, enhances the day-to-day -day quality of your life. It's, it's wonderful. But I think art allows you to die right, having come to terms with life. So I think, I think that's the main difference between the two. Is say, if I do something, if I like it, and if it's working for me, I'll ask somebody else. And if it works for somebody else, then at least I'm not alone. And if it works for more people, then I'm on the right track. So I think that's how, that's how language builds. And I think art is a language. That's terrific. What is this, what is this bird thing going on? It's fantastic. That's our friendly frog. Oh, it's a frog. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about uh, the relationship with your students, because I know you taught for what 26 years 27 years 27 yeah. years can you tell me a little about that and how it impacted you uh, yeah I it was a wonderful opportunity uh, I mean I never even graduated from high school and to work to be full professor that's some maneuvering because uh, academia is like a, a pool of barracudas so uh, you have to be pretty strong and uh, tenacious. But the, the thing I liked about teaching mostly was I wanted to find out what was relevant to fresh minds. And so in try and give them an atmosphere in which they can express that uh, openly. Where did you I, teach? I taught in Nova Scotia. It was a very important school on the, as a conceptual school. I also went to the school before it was an important conceptual school. It was more like an arts and crafts school. Uh, I lasted two years and went on to Vancouver. Uh, first Montreal, then Vancouver, because I wanted to find out what was relevant across the whole country. Uh, 
Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I never even knew art existed. Uh, at that time in Canada, it was a, sort of an embarrassment if your kids were interested in art. Where were you born? And My grandmother lived in a place called Joggins, where even early um, Darwin and people like that were interested in Joggins, because Joggins was a, a hotbed of fossils. And so I would go there and collect fossils. And it was a coal mining place, so you couldn't have a fire on the beach without the beach possibly catching fire. Uh, and all the slag piles were burning, so I thought the earth was on fire about a foot down. So, uh, but when you, you know, and people would talk about these things, these things that were 250 million years old, and you know, trying, as a little kid trying to understand that uh, was fascinating. But it was a fantastic environment at my grandmother's. And then where I lived was an interesting place because it was the last base in Canada for troops going to Europe in the Second World War. So the war didn't really end there until about 1955. So they were still blowing things up and, you know, getting rid of all the, the base. Uh, and so, you know, it was in being a curious kid, I would, I would drag other kids. Like one time I found a wagon load of bombs. Like they were only small yellow bombs and they're beautiful. So I got my wagon and I piled it up and went through the village. And nobody would come near me and I couldn't understand because I wanted to show them what I found. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I got home, they they took my wagon from me. <laughs> but it was a very curious uh, place. There was an airplane in the backyard next door that was being dismantled, so I could get you know window plexiglass and try and make things with that, and uh, even in. Before I knew anything about art, even or, you know, other than bad art education in school, uh, I would be involved in carving sculpture. I didn't know it was sculpture with chalk, leftover chalk, with a compass point. So I wasn't paying much attention to lessons, but I was having a lot of fun. And how old were you when you did this? Oh, too old, like. 15. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and your family, were they artistic? No, my, my father was a, uh, a druggist. He ran a drugstore. Uh, and we, we didn't have much money, but you don't know that when you're a kid, because to a kid, everything is normal. Anything and everything. Uh, but my they did, they wanted to know what to do with me when I got to be getting towards the end of schooling and I didn't have any ambition to do anything because there was no role models for me to to look at and so they you know my father somehow got me placed in a map drawing school and I went to talk to the uh, Photographers and they all said, "No, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it." <laughs> so, <laughs> Why not? Because they were just hunched over desks at that point. It was 
I don't know if it's more fun now or not. Uh, and then I had an uncle who was a producer in TV, and so I said, you know, I love photographing, and he says, no, no, don't do it, don't do it, because you really don't, it's not creative like you think it is. Somehow I got funneled into this art school. I found out I wasn't alone. There was other people interested in the same kinds of things in a way. And the principal of the school wouldn't let me study fine arts because he was a failed fine artist and he thought I would just ruin my life. So I had to leave that school <laughs> and went to Montreal, an interesting school. I studied uh, some sculpture and design and painting. And then I heard of an artist, Ray Kayuka. He was Japanese abstraction in Canada. Interesting, brilliant man. And he taught at a different university, but then he was going back to British Columbia. So I thought I would see what that was like uh, in terms of the art scene. And that was more interesting. Since I graduated in 1967, finally from Montreal, but also from Vancouver, School of Art, uh, and then from then on, I've always had a studio making work and doing whatever I had to do to survive. This is a, a hundred jobs. So I did a piece. <laughs> That's some sort of frog argument. Yeah, competing with me. Uh, so I found myself looking at this poster, cocking my head to the side, and I thought of a mirror, and I thought, I look like a little dog. So I, I made a mirror that said that. Read silently, I look like a little dog. So when somebody looks in there, all of a sudden they have this kind of a sense of compassion. Uh, and I did a number of pieces where words Physically, the word put you in a certain position. Uh, Can you explain that? I have a piece down near, in a sculpture park near Rome. It looks like a pillow. It's a pillow-sized rock, Guatemalan green marble. And it's in a bamboo forest in Rome. Uh, and you walk into it, and there's this pillow, and there's a gold line in the middle with very fine writing on either side in Japanese and English and you bend over to read it and it says the piece is called Humble Ending so as you bend over it says uh, Sayonara so, <laughs> and you walk around the other side and it says Sayonara again uh, so things like that uh, and what's, what's important for me is that work works up close as well as at a distance. Uh, and I will also want to make work that anybody can find themselves in it. Whatever you bring with it takes the work further. Uh, I had a show where it was called Tap Dance. It was four galvanized buckets with taps on the bottom, cheap brass taps, and they were filled with water and I made them leak a little bit. So you get this rhythm and your brain hears it as water torture or music. Uh, and so the guard of that museum uh, was going crazy, so he got a ladder and turned them all off. Uh, 
let me back up a little bit. There was, I was doing a piece about four tons on the front of this museum, and this rookie cop comes by and see if I have a permit for a crane truck. And I didn't. And I talked him into giving me five minutes to unload this and get the truck out. So he stood there timing me. And I thought, what a Philistine. Uh, and so back to the, the water being turned off. So I got a call from the director of the museum, come and fix my piece. It wasn't working. So I go, and it's torrential rain outside, just like crazy. And I'm trying to make my buckets leak. So the irony is, is entertaining. And there was a lot of thoughtful early pieces in that show. And so all of a sudden in walks this young rookie cop. He's getting out of the weather. He's got his raincoat on and he's got his radio blasting away. And he starts looking at the work. And as he looks at one work to another, he turns his radio down. His posture is changing. And like about 40 minutes later, he's still there. And he doesn't know who I am up the ladder, and I've been just watching them. And I go down, and I go up to him, and I say, what do you think of this stuff? And he says, I didn't know there was art you had to think about. And I thought, wow, this is a surprise from, from this guy. And so uh, and I went back up the ladder, and he spent another half hour there. And so a couple of days later, I was talking to the director, and he said, isn't it funny? He came in with a number of other young police officers a few days after that. So I thought, wow, wow. Uh, so I like when you can access people's curiosity. Uh, I was in Carrara another time when there was a landslide started. I was at the bottom of the mountain and all of a sudden I heard one rock dislodge and other rocks and other rocks. And when you're at the bottom, you want to know where it's coming from. So I look and look and can't see it uh, but then it slows down and stops and I thought geez that's really interesting because the mountain has moved I know it has uh, but it's come to balance it's come to this transitional balance and that's the way ideas come into the human mind they come in and they stir disturb things until they make sense and location in your matrix of your mind and it's a temporary temporary position uh, so this temporal balance I think is a very interesting thing and I think that's what culture should be seen as this uh, uh, not something solid but a temporary structure uh, so changeable creatable destructible <laughs> but to do stone carving in 19 60s and 70s in North America was to be a fossil. Uh, high art was Corten steel. Uh, and so I started seeing work come out of Italy in art magazines around the same time as the Berlin Wall was being torn down. And, and I started seeing work that I didn't particularly like coming out of Italy. It was trying to relegate humans to godlike positions. And I think the difference between Greek art and Roman art is, is I think Greek art is the manifestation of the spirit in the, in the material, and uh, Roman art is trying to elevate humans to, to the god position, generally speaking. Uh, so I came because I thought, how do you represent that c 
curled fist with your fist inside, <laughs> you know, the pacifist. Uh, and so I came to do a piece called Sleeping Wills, which was I wanted to use different marbles, different colors to represent these, these snake forms with the heads tucked in. Because a snake with its head tucked in is a defensive position certain snakes take. And so, uh, and I think a human, it's called sleeping wills, because I think human willpower can raise its ugly head and can be destructive or beneficial. So depending on the intelligence and the humanity of, of the consciousness that's raising the will. So I did these seven snakes, and you walk among them, spread out in a space, and as you walk through, they visually uncoil, so you get this unsettling feeling, uh, just because of your, your ability to navigate trajectory through, through space. Uh, so I came and did that piece. And I was really uh, encouraged to find out that you could be an artist here, and it wasn't an embarrassment. You know, I was in tears leaving because I had never experienced that before. It's hard in Italy for an Italian contemporary artist because uh, they have so much baggage, like it's being stuck with all your grandparents' furniture. <laughs> uh, so you have to find out how to put that baggage down. Fantastic. I was actually going to ask you if there was anything in particular you learned from the students I would teach in such a way that I would consider students peers. That you could help them on the track, you know, like an older peer. And I thought, you know, for me that was important. One interesting thing I fought to try and keep as long as possible, there was no grading system in the school. You either got credit or no credit. So you didn't have to satisfy the instructor. So, and I thought it was a much more open, he had 24-hour access. And so the freshness of students' mind helped me keep my mind fresh. And to come up with ideas, like I had some drawing classes where I had to teach like eight hours of drawing a day. Uh, so how do you come up with interesting things to keep people engaged? And so it was, and I ended up loving it, came up with a lot of interesting things. Uh, and so there was that kind of uh, stimulation with young minds. Who was it said that the only problem with young people is they want to try the impossible and succeed? <laughs> so I, that's what that's what kept me there. Should we talk about some of your work then? Okay, we can start with the money work. There's one here. Oh, lovely, yeah. I was shortlisted for a commission, and I wanted to do this piece, and I really liked the idea. I never got the commission but it got me onto a different track about value because it was a commission where uh, it was government and private lending money to Canadian companies working internationally. And so it was in Ottawa and on a column. I wanted to do coins about three, two to three feet based on antique coins falling out of the sky down to one on the bottom level that you could rub on your way to work for good luck. Like the nose on the bore in Firenze. Uh, so this, 
this piece here was a four-ton rock. I was interested in China at this point because I think the invention of money in the history of money is very fascinating. Uh, I've done about a dozen money pieces or value pieces that refer to, to money. Uh, this is a Wushu coin. Uh, it went on for a thousand, a long time as a coin. This piece is called Fuse because Fuse has this uh, two possible meanings. It's either coming together or blowing apart like a dynamite. So I was interested in the idea of what money does. Uh, it either coalesces people or puts them in uh, adversity. So I used this travertine from Iran because it looks like it's old. So it looks like it's been buried. Uh, I, I think the geology of material is interesting because marble and limestone were living materials at one point. In fact, they called them living stones. Uh, what, what do you mean uh, by that? There was shellfish, where magma wasn't. Magma is silicon-based. So I often take that into account when I decide on, on a, a stone material, the geological foundation of it. That's great, because I was going to ask you, how do you choose the materials you work with? Yeah, and I didn't know this was so nice to work, this travertine, because it looks like it's fragile, but it's not. Uh, and when you wash out the mud, the mud's been there for two million years also. The last money piece I did is seven cowhides stacked up. Like when you go to Ikea and you see the cowhides, you pick them up, there's a nice weight to them. The way they have hang over and so on. Uh, and then I was thinking, there's something really sensual about the... Uh, Americans talk about two bucks, five bucks, and so on. The buck is actually a buckskin, so it was a form of currency, and it's still referred to, but most people don't even know it, right? So I didn't know that. Yeah, and so. there's another piece, A Brief History of Money over there, where the Chinese, first their coins were like objects, like a, a spade, a bridge, and uh, a sword. Those are the three I, I chose. And I, I enlarged them so I can relate them from one object to another. When I use scale, I do it as you know, my scale relating to the idea. And I think invention of money is almost up there with fire. Like Alexander the Great couldn't have gone to Asia unless he had coins. Because you have 10,000 people in the march, you have to give them something. Uh, it, so, so I think, you know, when when they came up with coinage, it was a very big deal. It, it comes up in other pieces too, but these pieces of stone are enlarged. They're called oracle bones in China. I've done a series of them. It was often the underbelly of a turtle or bones. What they would do, they would heat them with iron rods, and as they cracked, the oracle would foretell the future. And it's the beginning of Chinese writing, really. There's like 3,000 symbols, and they know about half of them. So academics are now trying to look back to see what the, the Chinese were looking ahead to see. <laughs> so I find the meeting of minds really interesting, that, that kind of directional thinking.
that piece there and this one here and is also oh that's a greek piece it's called the sleeper and the rose and and we're living in an interesting time when western culture is trying to come to terms with its history the colonial past and all those things have to do with trying to let go but not but how do you let go and not forget so uh, i think you know this this i think western culture is falling asleep but you don't want to fall asleep you want to remember and learn from that so that's why it's so important and that's based on a the head of that piece is based on a, a small model of a caryatide in Greece. It's like a cloud she's falling into here. So the sleeper and the rose. I've used the rose in a number of pieces, especially the rose bud, not the open rose. Because a rose bud, when you, when you break it off and you hold it and it's heavy, has a density, just before it gets incredibly light. So it's like when an idea comes into your mind and you wonder what, and you struggle with that and all of a sudden it opens up. So it's a, an opening up. And the rose has been used cross-culturally all around the world as this idea of consideration. We can talk about the, the sirens. It's a chori. Archaic Greek figure that was used to uh, sometimes as a memorial and sometimes to mark an event and sometimes as a real person. See, I, I get off on tangents. Too. That's fine. I like uh, the tangent. Uh, the tangent in that is that you go to the Louvre and everything's against the wall. Now, most people don't know why that is. The, the reason that it is, it was a, a humiliation for an aristocrat to walk behind another person and they considered the sculpture another person. And I find that really fascinating. And that's why noses were broken off the sculpture from one culture to another. You defaced them. It's like Shakespeare, you thumb your nose at me, sir, and I thumb my nose, sir, but not at you, sir. Uh, that comes from that defacing. Uh, so those things are all in this piece. It's a returning and a going out. Uh, I got interested in that with the word duende in Spanish because duende is that uh, like flamenco dancing where you get both happy and sad simultaneously. It's a richness. The sirens first were half human, half bird. Uh, so these, these I, I use these sirens in various locations in public and private collections, a few. Uh, because uh, it indicates for me the desire to go into the world. You have your own choice. You can go in whatever direction you want. You have the ability to move where, where, where some things don't. You know? uh, so I think the responsibility goes back to, the, to you. You, you, you. You are your own self-authority. Uh, there's no other authority except your own self-authority, really. You have to be prudent and watch other people's definition of authority. Uh, but really, when it comes down to it, you return to the privacy of your own mind on your deathbed, right? Uh, so you better have done things right. <laughs> Thank you.
I received the Governor General's Award, the highest th- award in Canada for a commitment to a lifetime of art. There was an interview, and there was one question was rejected, or one answer was rejected from the committee when they put the book together. What would you do if you d- didn't have art? And I said I'd probably commit suicide because I, I would not have been able to make sense of things. I couldn't reconcile. And art has allowed me to reconcile myself in place and in time. And uh, I find that incredibly valuable. Because uh, I, I can't think of any other way I could have done that. I'm almost crying, right? <laughs> well, being dyslexic was really hard because people assumed you were stupid. Uh, and I didn't think I was stupid. Uh, but, like, even in university, I didn't dare tell anybody I was dyslexic. So in order to write a memo, I'd have to spread out newspapers to find the word. I could use the word, but I couldn't spell it. I was insecure about spelling. I mean, I've always been interested in language, partly because it's been a difficult thing for me. And I think expressing yourself in form is more important than uh, visual language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm really interested in visual language too because it's a, a, of, of this non-ability to picture words. So, so can you expand on um, how art helps you process things? Yeah. Uh, the only difference between a crazy person and an artist is they have a constructive path because you're both at the edge of at the edge of time, and so. Art has given me a structure of pieces that has given me a way back to go further. Uh, and I think that that's has allowed me to grow because it also has, it's like you can't move forward unless you look back, the same thing. Uh, that's why I think it's important to keep aware of where your works are so the body of work is so important, not the individual pieces as much as the body. Because the body of work is, is the voice. Uh, a culture without a voice isn't a culture at all. So thanks to John. You can see his work on his website, artistjohngreer.com, or on Instagram at Artist John Greer. Thanks to Gail Scoff, whose photographs of John can be seen on our website, materiallyspeaking.com, and on Instagram. You can also check out Gail's work on her website, gailscoff.com, and of course on Instagram at scoffupclose. Thanks for listening, and if you're enjoying Materially Speaking, please subscribe to our newsletter on our website so we can let you know when the next episode goes live. Thank <laughs> you.